BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, May the 12th starts now. On today's show, it's another great Oh What a Week with another great Oh What a Week co-host. We've got Chicago-born actor Max Fitzpatrick. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. There's a newsletter from Ben Jarofsky up there. If you haven't seen it this week, guys, I've been telling you about it. Get over there. All you got to do, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Broken Promise Friday, and here's why. Well, actually, it's, oh, what a week where uh, I join a distinguished guest to uh, wrap up just some of the news of the week that's either so bizarre it must be addressed, so weird, twisted, or just representative of where we are as a civilization. And I think uh, we have definitely two items on the agenda to just give us a sense the utter madness and lunacy of our times. Uh, so my distinguished guests, I'll bring them on in a little bit. Uh, the great uh, Max Fitz, Fitzpatrick, uh, writer, lover, cameraman, uh, filmmaker, um, artist, podcaster, son of Tony. Yes, shout out to Tony. Uh, die hard, Tony Fitzpatrick, the great uh, Chicago artist who is sort of to the White Sox what I am to the Bulls. Uh, a diehard fan for no particular reason since they don't love you back, Tony, Okay. You wear the hat. I wear the hat. They don't love you back. They don't give you anything for your love and allegiance. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent, although I kind of did mean to. Call this Broken Promise. It's going to open up uh, before I bring on Max, get his thoughts on this. This is a story. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Tessa Weinberg from uh, WBEZ. Uh, this story broke yesterday. At w- I don't know if anybody saw it. It was not followed up. I didn't see it in the bright one or the tribunal. Uh, maybe I missed it, uh, and it was there. I apologize humbly if I did. And uh, so this was a story about Brandon Johnson, Mayor Brandon Johnson, Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson. He's not officially the mayor. uh, And his, uh, what is his deputy chief of staff announcing uh, that maybe they weren't going to reopen the mental health clinics uh, after all. And I was just like, wow, I saw this story. And it like really hit me in the stomach, man. Ladies and gentlemen, like a gut punch. Like I, I actually felt the wind go out of me. Maybe you're not going to open the mental health clinics, reopen the mental health clinics after all. Again, Tessa Weinberg, uh, shout out to you. Um, She's the one that dug this up. So I'll just read you the lead. Uh, Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson was clear on the campaign trail that he supported reopening the shuttered city-run mental health clinics that closed more than a decade ago. It's a goal, he said, quote, that we have to work towards immediately in this first budget, end quote. But as he prepares to take the keys to the fifth floor office next week, his new administration says much of their approach has, quote, yet to be determined. 
I'm like, wow. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, wow. I've been around politics a long, long time. And I have been prepared. I have, like, learned from experience. I was so naive when I got into this game. I still am naive. I, 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 people, like, they, like, laugh at me how naive I, may, I am. I believe when a politician says he or she is committed to doing something, they are committed to doing something. And I've interviewed lots of politicians in 40-odd years of covering politics. And so I've learned to discern between politicians who are like really focused and determined to do something and those who are dancing and dodging and ducking and evading. And when they dance and dodge and duck and evade, I don't expect them to make good on anything because they're ducking and dodging because they don't want to take a stand. Brandon Johnson is from the left. You know, he was a public school teacher when Karen Lewis collected from obscurity and gave him a job as an organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union. This happened right around the time that Karen Lewis took charge of the teachers union and was uh, leading them on a strike sometime like 2011, 2012, around there. I don't know the exact date. The issue of the Chicago Teachers Union strike and their showdown with Mayor Rahm was inextricably linked to what Rahm did to the mental health clinics. There were six that he closed in high crime, poor areas in the city particularly black areas of the city. I thought it was a cr complete crime against humanity, to tell you the truth, to cut mental services in poor black neighborhoods where there was lots of crime. Those are exactly the neighborhoods where we should have more mental services. People are losing their freaking minds. You know how traumatic it is to be in a high crime area? Like to not know if you walk out in the street, someone's going to shoot you? You know, your friends who've died, countless kids in the public schools of Chicago at a very early age when they shouldn't have to are confronted with death. I thought that was one of the cruelest things Rom did. He did it in his first budget in 2011. It was passed 50 to nothing by the Chicago City Council. Shame, shame, shame. And there was a movement of lefties that erupted right around that time. To try to force Rahm and the city council not to close the clinics. Rahm ducked and dodged. He wouldn't even meet with them. And that movement, that kind of like dovetailed with the Occupy LaSalle Street. I know this is ancient history, ladies and gentlemen. I find myself, even now, 10 years ago, it's ancient history. It dovetailed with the Occupy LaSalle Street movement. It dovetailed with the movement against like bringing NATO to town and wasting money on NATO. We had a, a lot of other things we needed to do. Remember the nurses had a rally in the loop? Tamarillo, the rock and roll superstar guitarist, showed up and led the nurses in a song denouncing Mayor Rahm. Remember those days, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> That's when the left was like reorganizing. And they were like, taking charge. We, you know what? We're not going to let centrist, neoliberal. Oh, I knew all the little catchphrases dominate city, our city. So there was the great teacher strike of 2012. Rahm was forced to, like, to back off, pretty much give uh, everything the teachers were demanding after he treated them so crappily. Eventually, uh, the city pulled back on his privatization efforts uh, uh, with regards to the schools. They said the north side of Chicago will not have any more charters. 
His parents said, we don't want charters on the north side. We'll put them on the south side or the west side, but not on the north side. Classic Chicago. Anyway, that's the left. That, that's the left I know and love. And so when Brandon Johnson ran for mayor this time around, he made it clear. Oh, no, I'm reopening those clinics. This is not something I'm negotiating. This was a travesty. By the way, and it, and it gets beyond just the issue of what's the best way to provide mental health services for people. It's an issue of privatization, unionization. Like, should we move away from having good, well-paying city jobs that have residency rules so that people have to live in the city of Chicago who work there, that have pensions? So, like, when they get old, as happens to people, they get old. They're not destitute. You know, it was like, that was part of the issue, too. Because what you do when you do a privatization deal is you fire people who work for the city that make a decent wage, have good benefits, and you turn a contract over to a social service provider. Lord knows what they're paying their people. Lord knows what kind of benefits their people get. And by the way, the city basically says, we don't care. And the people who work for those social service agencies don't have to live in the city of Chicago. So it's not a reinvestment in the city of Chicago. It's not like taking money and putting it into a neighborhood like Englewood or Woodlawn or Austin or Roseland or any other neighborhood that needs investment. No, they can live anywhere. It's like throwing your money away. But it's considered in the eyes of neoliberals, you know, a private public partnership. So therefore, it's good. Brandon Johnson stood up against all that. I'll just read you again, going back to Tessa Weinberg's call, uh, article in WBEZ. At a mayoral candidate forum in January, Johnson privately said that not only do city mental health centers need to be reopened, but they, quote, do have to be publicly funded with good union-paying jobs and no to privatization. But Passione Isaias isn't making any promises. She said, whether the Johnson administration will continue to fund nonprofit providers will be determined through the assessment the new administration is undertaking. Now, that's, uh, she's quoting uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, Christina Passione-Sayas. You know, that's funny, folks. When Brandon Johnson was on the campaign trail and people came up to him and said, are you going to open up the neighborhood clinics that Mayor Romp closed? He didn't say, well, you know, we're going to do a survey. We're going to do a study. We're going to do a budget study. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to open the clinics. No. <laughs> we're going to study the budget. See if we can afford it. Maybe there's a more, I don't know, economical way to keep people who are losing their freaking minds. I don't recall him saying that. I recall a, a definitive resounding yes. We're going to open up the mental health clinics. And then... Lefties like me were like, oh, yeah, finally, a mayor who realizes how important it is to open up the mental health clinic. Oh, my goodness. You know what? It's a funny thing. Uh, when I read the story, I called around. I texted around to friends of mine of the leftist and the centrist persuasion. I have friends. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, I have friends who are lefties, and I have friends who are centrist. And I got back from both. A combination of, Ben, you don't understand. 
which is something I've been hearing in this town since I moved here in 1981. Some things never change. Whenever I question why we do the things we do in the city of Chicago, somebody tells me, Ben, you don't understand. I've heard, Ben, you don't understand from Alderman Will Burns, Alderman Joe Moore, uh, oh my God, uh, Alderman Amaya Pawar. For a while, I thought my first name was Ben, you don't understand when I ever talked with Amaya Pawar because I think every sentence began with, Ben, you don't understand. This is how you deal in Chicago. This is how Chicago works. <laughs> so I'm like, Lefties who are trying to assure me that Brandon is not breaking his promise is saying that what he's doing is very cleverly throwing this out as a trial balloon to enrage people like you, Ben. And when you get enraged, then he's going to say, "Okay, I have to I have to open one mental health clinic to satisfy lunatic lefties like Ben. That he could say then he could say to the centrist, I have no choice. I had to, the lunatics, Ben, the left, I have to deal with them. Oh my God, you have no idea what they're like. And then I get my centrist friends who say, Ben, you don't understand. <laughs> they tell me that too. Ben, you don't understand. It's very complicated running the city of Chicago. You know, there's very serious monetary issues the mayor must deal with. So if he says one thing on the campaign trail, it's not something else when he's in office. The campaign trail, he has to deal with budgets. When he's in office, he has to deal with budgets. You don't understand, Ben. It's very complicated. So maybe we can't afford to open up a new clinic because you don't want to put someone on a payroll. Better to kick out to social service. Come on, Ben. You just don't understand. I'm like, oh, yeah? How come there's never any money? How come there's never any money? It's just a simple question, centrist. We're always hard up for money. Can't afford to put someone on a payroll in a mental health, in, in, in a mental health clinic because it's just too expensive. But somehow or other, we're going to make good on that $1.3 billion Lincoln Yards deal. Speaking of things that drove lefties crazy, and there was a story just the other day in the newspaper how the developer of the Lincoln Yards is so happy that Brandon Johnson is coming into office because he understands the significance of the Lincoln Yards. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Brandon Johnson was launched by a movement that opposed Lincoln Yards. You got the $1.3 billion for the Lincoln Yard. But sorry, Ben. You don't understand. There's no money in the budget for mental health clinics. By the way, and not that we, there's no shortage of need today, Sun-Times. I'm just going to read you four headlines from the Sun-Times today, just to give you a sense that not much has changed in the city of Chicago in terms of the need for mental health care. One headline, boy, 14, charged with murder in shooting. Another headline, man fatally shot in Woodlawn home. Another headline, mass shooting in Englewood leaves two dead, three wounded. This is not even a page one story. This is on page 17. This is how, like, we're just so, we just taken it stride. Mass shooting in Englewood leaves two dead, three wounded. And finally, this headline, woman charged in bat attacks struggles with mental illness, her family says it's a story about a 26 year old woman who sort of went on this bizarre rampage on the northwest side of chicago jumping out of her car and attacking random women that she saw on the street with a metal baseball bat she was apprehended and sent to court and her mother was saying that she struggles with mental illness 
but we don't need to expand the mental health program in the city of Chicago. No, let's just keep privatizing it because that's worked so freaking well for the city of Chicago. Anyway, that may be an all-time record for a promise broken. But let me just make one more point. It hasn't officially been a broken promise. It was just something offered up by the deputy chief of staff. So I'm waiting for mayor-elect Brandon Johnson to step forward and assure all the people who elected him that the deputy chief of staff misunderstood where he stood on this and didn't quite understand the significance of reopening the mental health clinics in the city of Chicago uh, on a number of fronts. And I will be really reassured and I will rejoin the celebration of lefties everywhere of a new day in the city of Chicago. And I will finally understand that something significant happened when Brandon Johnson was elected. All right. That's enough of me ranting and railing for the day or for the moment. I'm not done ranting and ranting for the day. Max Fitz Fitzpatrick, you uh, patiently sat through my diatribe, my frustration, <laughs> my emotional breakdown. Thank you for doing that. Of course. I'm so happy you brought up Tom Morello. I was there, man. I was there with the nurses and Tom Morello there. I, it, you brought me back to such a time. Get out of here. You were actually at, at uh, City. I was at the, pl- the Daily Plaza, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. I was helping out a, a guy, well, a, a filmmaker named Andy Davis. He, he he's, goes by Andrew Davis. He directed The the Fugitive. And, uh, uh, you know, my dad formed a relationship with him over the years. And uh, I, I was just a young 19-year-old kid at the time. And, you know, he was coming to Chicago to film you know, the NATO protests. And it, it, it was along with uh, Haskell Wexler, the guy who he had made uh, medium cool. And I think he was sort of seeing this, uh, you know, comparison, uh, you know, decades later and, and could possibly, uh, you know, compare NATO to the 1968 uh, Chicago Democratic Convention, which it was not. Uh, you know, but it was an it, it was a great attempt at, at at trying to film something. There was this really beautiful moment where um, these soldiers were throwing their medals of honor and and, and purple hearts uh, away, and it was a really powerful statement. And yeah, I, I'll never forget. I'll never forget those days, man. You brought me back. Well, I uh, I I was not at the rally. I read about it. I saw footage okay. of it. And um, why wow, you threw out a bunch of names, uh, uh, Andrew Davis. Are you yeah. for 10 trivia points? If you pull us off, you are really good. Yeah, Who what's up? Is Andrew Davis's younger brother? Oh, uh, Richie Davis. I, I, look, the mouth falls open. Yeah. Dis- How'd yeah. you pull that out? I'm the real deal, man. I, I know, I know those guys. I Richie <laughs> Davis is a musician, he was yeah. in Andy's first movie called Stony Island, and yeah. uh. It's a great movie. It's it's actually one of the most underrated Chicago films of all time. If you and actually was the basis for a lot of Chicago movies. Michael Mann saw that movie and and went crazy. I I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to like you know steal that from Andy. That's a story he's told before. But he saw those those wet streets, you know, and just went nuts. So uh, the, he's. Andy's the the real deal. I I mean he's a he's a big uh, hero of mine, and uh, 
Wow. Mentor, yeah. So I gave you credit yeah. for knowing his bro- his uh, his brother Richie Davis. His brother's really cool. I've only met him a couple times, but uh, uh, cool cool guy. Uh, he I he was playing at Nick's Beer Garden once, and I met I just missed him. But uh, he's he's playing around town. I think. Yeah, no, he plays I, in a band yeah. called Chicago Cats. A uh, shout yeah. out to, to Devin Thompson, Daddy. Yeah, you, who's the lead singer of yeah. um, uh, Chicago Cats, and is the father. Right of a woman that you went to high school with. So the whole world comes together. Uh, That's right. Jordan. Yes. And it comes together on the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, oh, yeah. Mucho credit for uh, knowing uh, about uh, Andrew Davis, Haskell yeah. Wesker, medium cool. Uh, I could go on and on. Mac, yeah. Uh, 1968 Democratic Convention contrasted with the 2012 NATO meeting here in yeah. Chicago. Lots of differences, probably more differences and similarities. Uh, but I, you, if you were in town for NATO, you recall the, the heavy troop presence, tear gas in mm-hmm. in the uh, throughout the loop. Um, yeah, protesters, demonstrators running, racing through the streets. Very bizarre, twisted way that Rom had mm-hmm. of sort of imposing on the city of Chicago this right. convention that nobody or this meeting that nobody wanted, nobody like, yeah. absorbed. You know the, the notion totally. Of no, no, I, I mean, I'm just. You were talking about the, the, just the, the weaponry <laughs> that those uh, cops had. They had something. They pulled out this, uh, this machine or like this sort of. They kind of rolled it out, and it sort of just it, it makes this loud noise to the point where it, like, if you get very close to it, I'd imagine y- your eardrums explode. And I was just, I just remember being there with. Uh, a friend sort of, you know, we were just sort of crewing. We were just sort of carrying equipment, protecting, you know, the cameramen, not that we're going to protect uh, cameramen at, at, at our, at our height age, you know, whatever, but you know, it was, it was a nice little gig. And, uh, but just seeing that was really scary knowing they were going to use that on us and, or they were at least willing to. And I, I think the scariest thing about being in a protest when things you know get crazy and 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 you know batons start swirling and all of that is both sides are terrified and i think that's the worst thing that could happen is is when both sides are are scared and and willing to sort of you know do anything they can to i guess keep the dominance or 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 keep keep the presence and you know it you know i don't want to say I come from the protesting side, but, and I've seen some ugly sides from uh, things from the protesters. However, I, there's nothing scarier than, uh, uh, 200 to 300 pound, uh, force, uh, curling at you with a, a big stick. All right. So, uh, before we leave this general topic, right. Yeah. I want to, uh, get your thoughts on this point. So, Without getting into the specifics of right. mental health clinics, uh, which mm. are staffed by uh, city workers uh, and uh, social service contracts that go to social service agencies that hire their own staff to provide services, without even getting into that, sure, uh, I'm I'm going to ask you to deal with like this general theme that what a politician says. Uh, on a campaign trail is not to be believed 
Okay. Uh, and this is something that's been said to me, Max, repeatedly down through the years. You can't believe what politicians tell you when they're campaigning. Right, right. Because they'll tell you anything to get your vote. And then there'll be a different reality they confront. And so people have told me, go, they've called me childish, immature, Mm -hmm. naive. It's like my fault for believing. Right. Right. So I struggle with this. Yeah. I really struggle with this. Your thoughts on on whether you should believe, if you're naive to believe what a politician tells you, or should you just work from the assumption that anything a politician tells you will probably is a promise meant to be broken? Go ahead. I think it's a little of both. I think that, you know, I the reason so many people do not even vote in the first place is because they think politicians are liars. And it's examples like this. I mean, they're pro- I, the non-voters, when they hear something like this, are probably having a field day in that way. You know, they're just probably like, see, another liar, another this. And it lets you down. Um, however, we can't we can't give in to that though we we need to we need to keep hope we need to believe and we need to hold politicians accountable i mean you know just because he's backing down on it now doesn't mean we can collectively hold him accountable you know put the clips of him saying these things in his face and say hey you promise um so i don't think there's any harm in believing a politician and believing in their words that they're saying and you know brandon did a great job of, you know, convincing us. He I, I, he spoke beautifully in those debates. That's why I voted for him twice. You know, I thought there was a, a couple other guys that were, you know, worthy of the vote as well. But in the end, I thought Brandon, I, I just felt he had the plan and his voice sounded the most genuine to me. So, you know, I, I think it's very disappointing what's going on, but at the same time, we could still keep hope and we could still hold people accountable. All right. Uh, before we switch uh, to what's on your mind, let me just say this one point. I'm sure. going to push back on myself. There are some pro- politicians who don't break their promise. MAGA. MAGA <laughs> does not break its promise. To they MAGA. don't budge. They don't budge. Oh, they don't budge. You know what? I mean, yeah. they're insane. They're batshit yeah. crazy. I like, I mean, I live like in this moment of dread. We'll get into this. Yeah. Constant feeling of dread that fascism is about to erupt. uh, Right. It's right around the corner (laughs) in this country. It's because they never deviate. Uh, They're ride or die. They don't break. They're ride or die. It's uh, they ride or die with this shit. It's something to see. Yeah. yeah. Whereas liberals, (laughs) like they say anything to get elected and then they go, well, come on. Right. Wake up. Hey, hey now. Hey there. (laughs) There's still Uh, hope. You know, hey, maybe Brandon didn't even know that his deputy uh, chief of staff was going around saying, well, there's still open to many possibilities. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Uh, And uh, (laughs) I, uh, right, right. A lot of things are open. Uh, I will say this there is a leftist who I will not name, one of the people I I talked to yesterday. And this leftist assured me uh, that Brandon would not back down on this promise. This leftist assured uh, me to the point where we made a bet. 
So I know you're out there leftists and you don't want to be known people that you probably don't want people to know you talk to me. I don't blame you. I'm right. Uh, so just saying, I, I honor my bets. We'll see who wins this bet. The bet is by the end of Brandon's second year in office or by his second okay. budget, all the mental health clinics will be reopened. All of them it won't be happening in the first budget by, by the second budget. So leftist that I will call, what can I call this leftist uh, to protect anonymity? Uh, we'll call this leftist cheesehead, for lack of a better term. Uh, mm, I, I smell I, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, you can't slip anything back. Spitz, I'll tell you that one. Are you sure your name's not Columbo? Uh, anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, that's what's on my mind to open things up with. Uh, your mind, uh, You. the first thing uh, I asked you, what's on your mind these days? You said right. the writer's strike. The writer's um, strike. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we've been we've been talking about this for a little bit and, and it's been going on. And, you know, uh, there is this fear that jobs will replace writers in Hollywood. Right. There's no longer need for originality or risk taking. There will be a formula, to, you know, captivate the audience and all these things that have worked in the past. And, and uh, this this A.I. will never miss a beat. And as an actor, I, I I selfishly ask, what about me? You know, <laughs> will, will I too be replaced? You know, will will I be a living actor playing a stand-in for a famous dead guy? Um, you know, will I? Everybody made such a big deal out of you know Rogue One, right? And the superimposed uh, uh, face of of the dead actor there, and you're and you're just thinking like, oh wow, cool, yeah, yeah. I could kind of I could kind of see through it, but yeah, that's cool. And now I'm fearing, is that the life? Is that going to be the life of an actor now? You know, am I going to be playing? You know, um, I hope I hope it's like Marlon Brando or or like or, or like. Cassavetes or something, somebody old school handsome, you know, not like a a, a John Wayne or a, um, you know, or like a, a Dustin Diamond or something. I I, I don't know. You just some. I I want to play someone legitimate if they're going to put me out in these fake roles. And then I think about you know, what's the state of movies? Are movies going to be this sort of this? You know, when you go into like a college dorm room and somebody has those rock and roll posters of, of Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and, and, and John Lennon all at the bar together. And you're like, wow, that's that's a cool idea, but it never happened. And you're just kind of thinking, is that going to be movies? Is it is it going to be Chris Farley and 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 Luke Perry in a buddy cop movie? And uh, we're all going to be racing to be Luke Perry's body double. I don't know. You know, it scares me really. It really does. So I've just been thinking about that and, and how old, you know, recycled Larry David or David Chase writing will be just coming out of these AI scripts and trying to trick us as if we don't know it. But um, it does scare me a little bit. Well, I um, uh, okay. So the issue uh, at the heart of what uh, Fitz is talking about 
uh, is a demand that the striking writers uh, in Hollywood are making of the producers, their, their employers, and that is uh, that they not uh, bring in AI, they not bring in robots, machines to do the job of writers, they not replace writers with machines. Uh, and uh, so this is like, this is one of the key issues uh, in this strike, whether the writers back down on this particular issue in order to cut a deal is unknown. I could see that happening because there's also the issues of how much they get paid uh, right now, you know, and so the AI or the robotic angle is a little more in the future. It's not as pressing as a threat yet because the robots aren't sophisticated enough to replace a writer. But eventually, uh, as Fitz is saying, as they get more and more sophisticated, you can program a writer uh, with past scripts of TV shows and they can replicate. The presumption is they will replicate uh, the script from that show with a certain degree of accuracy that most people uh, won't notice. And most people are just obsessively uh, gorging on TV. So after six hours uh, fits of just like stuffing a TV show into your brain, really, how are you going to distinguish between a script written by Fitz and a script script written by Hal, the computer? Uh, right. and, so, um, and presumably Hal will be less expensive than Fitz. Hal uh, won't get any disease, so you don't have to pay Hal's uh, health care. <laughs> okay? So this is uh, that's so futuristic. My yeah. guess is fits that they're not going to deal with that in this particular strike, but I'm with you on this. Right, right. No, uh, I know. Um, do you think they'll ever create, you're viewing this from the the view of an actor, because it's true that they'll replace yeah. actors in a heartbeat. Oh, oh yeah. you actors they're... think you're exempt from this? You yeah, think oh, you're no. exempt from this? Once uh, they figure it out, we're done. Once they figure it out, you're gone. You know? <laughs> Will they ever have a robot that could do as good an good imitation of your father as you do no no <laughs> just can't happen won't happen all right well there's your I, invitation to do the Im imitation yeah hold on dad you want to you want to talk you want to yeah yeah give me give me the give me the give me the mic kid give me the mic uh ben what's happening <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> what up tony uh, nothing much you know just uh yeah, same shit, different pile, my man. <laughs> What's with the White Sox hat, Tony? They suck. Let me tell you about the White Sox. Let me tell you about the White Sox. Let me tell you something about them. As I interrupt you, let me tell you something. Uh, we got to get Reinsdorf to sell the team. We gotta get... <laughs> okay. Seeing a robot could do that just as well as Fitz can. Oh, I doubt it. Here's the other riff I was at hat on this. Yeah. I've, I've kind of been obsessively following this. Yeah. So I kind of alluded this to you this earlier, but I didn't really uh, get at the heart of it. The effort by writers, mm -hmm. people who make a living from writing, yeah, people who themselves can be replaced by a machine. Mm -hmm. But this is like a tendency of writing. This goes almost back to the um, when we were talking about uh, getting rid of the mental health clinics. There's there's this attitude like centrists have. And centers always want to see both sides of a story. We're going to get into this with Donald Trump a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thing, yeah. But centers always want to see both sides of the story. You know, they're going to understand both sides of the story. It's not just your world. And 
I think the writers are asking too much for universal protection against AI, against robots. And I read this, an essay about right. this. Uh, it was in the New York Times. I'm like, dude, you're, wait, you write for the New York Times. Your union went on strike, one day strike last year, crying about the same issue. You want everybody yep. to jump on your side. Now, yeah. you you look at these writers in Hollywood, you're hating on them. Well, you think you're being unrealistic. You know, yeah. you can't stop progress. And, yeah. and I'm like, man, the people, there's just like this, people in this country don't want to like to show any ounce of sympathy for anybody else because right. they feel like they're giving something up. You it know what I mean? A little, yeah, it seems a little elitist in, in that way. I mean, I, I I don't know many writers that are more disrespected than like the screenwriter. I mean, you, you constantly have to worry about your ideas being stolen. And then, you know, you're not writing the great American novel. You're not covering politics, you know. You're writing, you're writing fictional stories or, or stories based on events. And, you know, uh, you have to sell yourself harder than I think most writers do. And it, it sort of becomes this thing where, you know, somebody says they're a screenwriter and it, it's met with this, I don't know, this idea that like, oh, <laughs> he's in his mom's basement, you know, and that's just simply not the truth. But yet we sort of, treat them like that you know like they're kids in, in, in that way uh because they can can create these stories to them to some it's just fantasy i guess but um yeah when i when i see something like that it seems very uh just the nose is up at at, at screenwriting when i when i see that yeah i uh i i'm i'm with the writers I'm pretty much always with a writer who's in a dispute. I admit right. I have that bias, but just in general, I, I, I feel, you know, Andrew Yang was the one I got to give him credit. We made fun of him so many times in this show. Uh, back in 2019, <laughs> when he ran, he was one of the candidates, uh, right. 19 or 20 that were running for uh, in the democratic primary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he was the one he, he warned us uh, across yeah. the board. We are all he replaceable. Did. And depending on who's getting replaced, you know, that's that's where uh, it's like if you're not getting replaced, then you're like a centrist. You know, you know, I see both sides. If you're getting replaced, you're not a centrist. You don't see right. both sides when you're losing your job, your health care. <laughs> you know, so I see both sides. It's really good for society that like I'm exposed. Uh you know, I, I I'm just picturing somebody, you know, in the the classic way, just packing their desk in a in a in a brown, you know, cardboard box. You know, I see both sides, though. You know, I really saw, you know. Yeah, I see you guys just sides. don't get it. <laughs> uh, I see both sides. I see both sides of the story uh, as I'm uh, 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 getting uh, losing my job. All right, uh, you alluded to the uh, Trump. Wow, uh, to the Trump primetime yeah. show. Uh, on yeah. CNN. yeah so i i truthfully truthfully i i didn't i uh i didn't see i didn't see it at the time and i thought i was gonna get to watch you know a full preview of it you know on youtube or something like that and uh i just cannot find it cnn has somehow uh made that very difficult to find i wonder why Hmm. Uh, is it because they're regretting something? I don't know. But I, I did watch some like Sports Center 
type of highlights, uh, you know, uh, on my phone and, uh, you know, it, and nothing's, nothing's new. It's, it's just CNN setting up Trump, you know, to, uh, succeed once again. And, you know, I, I think what I really took away from it was the Anderson Cooper monologue that was just really condescending. I mean, you, Anderson Cooper is a, a thoughtful, good human being. I, I, I think I, you know, from all accounts, he seems like a, a normal uh, guy, but I just think he was a complete condescending moron talking to us, just the way he was handling everything. I mean, he's saying things like, many of you are rightfully angry. I get it. Uh, it was disturbing. And uh, it's like, okay, yeah. So why'd you put it on? And, you know, he's going, he used the term thug. You allowed you you allowed him to use the word on your platform. What you, you guys use the term thug in that in that regard, in my opinion. And you know, and and he's going, he's spreading so many ridiculous lies. It's impossible to fact check everything he says. It's like, then why are you putting this liability of a person on TV again? It doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, the whole. Uh, you know, maybe you haven't been paying attention, uh, you know, to what the the constant stuff that is going on throughout. I mean, you know, Trump exists outside of CNN, right? I mean, he's all over our timelines. He's MAGA is, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, he he's not he's not like the 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 boogeyman in your closet. He he is your everyday person i mean th these people are in your everyday life you if you're outside and having conversations you are very aware that trump exists and you're also very aware that he's gearing up to run again and he has a good chance so long as you know this maga <laughs> you know extremism or or what have you as long as it exists he's always going to have a shot yeah and you know the, the line of you know staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with was just the cherry on top of it all because it's like okay whoa what 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 do you do anderson cooper you stay in your studio and you talk to people that you just constantly are like oh yeah i can't believe it oh yeah isn't this a, yeah i agree and it's just i i don't know what are you doing what, what I feel like he's in a silo himself. So I, I don't know, just the whole thing was uh, just a slap in the face. And it, it's just it's just another typical example of these news stations and these talking heads telling us what we need to know. And it's just uh, it's really pathetic. Uh, yeah. So you, uh, a shout out to uh, Lister Frank. He uh, said it sent me. Uh, Anderson Cooper's statement. So thank you, Frank. Right before I talked yes. to you, went on the air, and so that's how I was aware of it. Uh, and I had already uh, absorbed many articles about uh, the debacle of the town hall uh, show on on Wednesday, where Donald Trump was given access to three million or so viewers uh, in in a uh, a live television show. So there was really not much opportunity to uh, correct all the lies that he told. And beyond that, uh, the Republicans pretty much chose the audience. So it, uh, it was like a, a cheering section for Donald Trump. There might uh, as well have been a laugh track. I mean, it's just it's it, it yeah. was 
it was his audience. I mean, it was, it was a home field advantage game there. So in the aftermath of that, CNN has been ripped by all kinds of people, including Fitz, uh, for uh, allowing a fascist to have an opportunity to present his point of view to America to further move America toward fascism. It's essentially the danger and the fear. Uh, in the face of that, uh, of that criticism, CNN had a couple of options. That's, they could have said, you know what? Man, did we screw up. That was stupid. Here's the reality, guys. We were hopelessly looking to bring in eyeballs to give credibility to our station because we're going broke because we're yep. not, our numbers are falling. And so this was like a misguided attempt to uh, get eyeballs in, which can get more TV revenue, more advertising revenue in. And we're really sorry and embarrassed that we did this. They could say that, which would be an honest, you know, like Mark Jackson, ladies and gentlemen, sports right. radio connection. He did not vote for uh, the Joker for MVP. Right. Yeah, yeah, I saw I saw that. And he apologized. Yeah. And it was like, you know what? I screwed up. I over I made a mistake. But he that's called when you, you wake up in the morning and you realize you did something right. wrong. And then you apologize. Yeah. But CNN, they're not doing that. <laughs> what they no, did was they got together with the, like, uh, the smartest people. Maybe they got robots that are thinking of these excuses. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. The AI guys working. Really? And they came up with this notion that they really didn't do this because they wanted to bring eyeballs to their station. No. They wanted to do this to give a voice to the Trump people who are not listened to. That was one of their excuses for doing it. Which right. is like, are you kidding me? Fox TV? Ever yeah. heard of it? It's yeah. like, 24-7 MAGA voice. So it's not like they don't already have access. And then two, this is the, the priceless one. Uh, they did this to show America what America was up against with fascism. Uh, so now you saw what the fascism is. Like, that's why we did right. it. Now, in, in my humble opinion, Fitz, I'm going to throw this at you. Anderson sure. Cooper had a decision. Anderson Cooper is fantastically, fabulously successful. He himself is from wealth. He doesn't need the job, but he likes the job. So he could threaten his existence with CEN, CNN by saying, you know, boss, Chris Licht had a CNN. That was a really stupid move. I'm embarrassed to said I'm in with this station and you got to change your evil ways to quote Carlos Santana. He could have said that, but no, <laughs> he went company right. man on us. Yeah, he did. He, he absolutely man. did. That's what yeah. he was doing. I'm like, God right. dang, Anderson, you don't need the money. You right. can take a stand. Well, you know? Yeah. I, I And to your point about Fox News, I mean, it, it, talk about guys, again, having a field day. They're on the other side of that channel going, can you believe CNN thought they were going to, like, get the best out of Trump? Look at them handling. They're, they're like, they think they're winning. The more airwaves you give this guy, the Republicans are going to feast on it. They think they're winning. That's the funniest part. You flip on Fox News, Hannity is like, oh, yeah, he really gave it to him, didn't he? It's like, <laughs> but it's, it's the absurdity that makes it so funny in that sense because, you know, that poor, I mean, that poor moderator, she's, she's, she's trying to ask, you know, heavy-hitting questions and, and questions that should be able to stump him. But, he can get his way out with these one-liners and like 
it might as well again come with a laugh track a drum set you know whatever it, it, he he is going to keep winning if we keep giving him these basically open mic platforms it, it is it's it's irresponsible yeah and and anderson cooper i mean geez like had all the the power in the world to to say the right thing i mean cnn is not going to fire him if he calls out their company at least i don't think i mean he's been around I, he's the face of the company what would be the harm of him just saying like yeah this was wrong and i you know i just really don't i i really don't condone this one uh sorry folks that would have been everything that would have meant everything i they um and if they did fire him so what i mean really so <laughs> i agree i you agree get rid of all of them you know you're you know? getting admired somewhere else yeah, uh, here, yeah. here's the exact quote uh <laughs> it, it's Anderson cooper speaking uh to the listeners of uh, cnn uh, you have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away <laughs> in, in a desperate attempt for, uh, to make it look noble as opposed to this crap act of yeah. trying to bring in eyeballs? Right. <laughs> they had these great intentions. We have to listen to MAGA. Nobody ever yeah. listens to MAGA. Hello? They got to <laughs> their own president. They control the Supreme Court. They're outlawing abortion all over the country. They're saying you can't say gay. Yeah. It's yeah. across the country. People are not only listening to MAGA. MAGA's ordering people what to do. No, listen yeah. to the uncle. <laughs> do you like, really think the world's going to be MAGA. better if we stop watching CNN? Yes, I do, actually. I really I really do. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, good, 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 good. Heck of a job, uh, CNN. All right, we're going to... Um, <laughs> We're going to close with a little piece of non-news uh, related uh, subject that I warned you I was going to throw you. Uh, yeah. Throw yeah. Uh, I, so uh, Fitz and I uh, had lunch together a couple of weeks ago. We got into this conversation. I don't even know how we got to this point. I, I really don't remember what. But we got to the issue of this notion Chicagoans have. This is one of my favorite little talking points. I love this conversation right here. Chicagoans are very sensitive about people who live in the suburbs saying they're from Chicago, or more to the point, people who grew up in the suburbs saying they're from Chicago. And I, I am not from Chicago, okay? So it's like so many things that I see Chicagoans do that I don't quite understand why they do it. For instance, to close the show where it began it, continually electing politicians that feel it's okay to break their promises to them right off the bat. That is a quintessential Chicago thing. And the yeah. Chicagoans <laughs> look at you like you're weird when you think that's strange, okay? So uh, similar to electing politicians that just routinely break their promises, uh, Chicagoans have this antipathy, this hatred, this disdain for people who say grew up in Lincolnshire, who say they're from Chicago. And I'm thinking of uh, Jalen Brunson. You know, he's from Chicago. No, he's from Lincolnshire. He did not. Okay, the Chicagoans will do that. Uh, help me out, Fitz. You're born and raised in Chicago. You, you can speak as a Chicagoan in this in ways that I mm -hmm. cannot. So right. what's going on here? Uh, so, you know, when I think of the suburbs, I think of, 
John Hughes. I think it, I think of John Hughes movies like 16 candles and the breakfast club. And that, that really beautiful suburb that was all set in and, and, and just the fantasy it, it, it brought to me as a kid of what the suburbs were like. And, you know, I think it's kind of that idea mixed with, you know, watching kids sort of grow up and I, I don't know when you're a city kid and you watch suburban kids, you sort of get the vibe that, you know, they got a lot more attention. They got, uh, you know, a better education, whether that may or may not be true, but I think it's kind of through these fantasy lenses we view the suburbs in. And then I think the real rivalry and personal, from my personal experience of when I get touchy about, people coming into the city and, and, and uh, claiming to be a Chicagoan is, you know, growing up in Chicago is a lot different from, you know, what we, what we believe uh, is a, a suburban experience. Now we don't know anything about the suburbs. That's kind of the funniest part is like, I, I, I go to, I go to movies for, you know, for that, or, or, you know, I, I, when I go to my cousin's place, you know, for Christmas break or, or, or Thanksgiving. But I think what it is, is it's a jealousy. It's, it's, there's a grass is always greener on the other side element to it that, you know, they, the suburbs just seem very well put together. And I think we get sort of touchy about it. And I, I gotta be honest. I think my rivalry with the suburbs really heated up in college when all these suburban kids were coming to Chicago and kind of, they were mean, they were mean to us. I mean, we were the city kids letting them in on all these, you know, hidden gems, the, you know, these hot dog joints, these pizza places, these venues, all this. And then what did we get? Just nothing. Just, they took our jobs. They took, uh, you know, they uh, they took they took everything from us, man. They took our houses, all that. So, and again, I met some I met some great I have some great friends from the suburbs, and I, I say this, you know, as a joke, but I think there's a sort of a jealousy and sort of this, um, you know, intimidation that you know we try to flex on suburban people and they're not intimidated that's kind of what i learned throughout it i mean the whole tough guy chicago act is very much a facade and it's you know it's something we have to kind of learn to get over but i don't think we ever will so long as you know uh we keep this cycle of you know the suburb the suburban fantasy and you know us sort of kind of looking from the outside in, you know, uh, I think if we sort of, I don't know, somehow, somehow integrated more in that sense, uh, if we, you know, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that can come about. I think it's always just going to be that city thing. And I think it is ridiculous, but at the same time, there just is that part of me. There just is that part of me that, that will always ride on that side of, of that, that dumb tough Chicagoan because it's just it's in my DNA unfortunately I think I, I think one of the greatest things I've ever seen about the suburbs in Chicago 
and you're you're in this the uh what's that what's that doc uh the the uh the city so real is that city so real yeah so you're you're in you're in a bit of that the 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 monologue that tim tooten of the hideout gives about ferris bueller is so beautiful and so accurate and it just that's actually what has caused me not to watch ferris bueller in five years even though i love the movie there's just that part of it that i i don't know the um there is that character that comes into the city and and sort of finesses everything and messes with everything and then gets to go back home at the end of the day and it also did remind me of like Lollapalooza in that matter where you know kids would just come drink their socks off hang off of uh street street signs you know try to take them down whatever you know make a muck out of Grant Park and granted there's some city people doing that same behavior too it's not just them but i it, it, then it, you know they leave and they're kind of like thanks see ya and yeah. that's sort of what it feels like i think that's what it comes from there well um uh yeah i remember that riff uh very well and uh i i can understand uh i guess in a weird way the the, the interesting thing is that uh uh we mentioned uh Tamarillo uh, earlier in the show. Uh, he's yeah. from the suburbs. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, he is from uh, <laughs> the suburbs. And I want to say, uh, and don't quote me on this, uh, that he um, is from sort of the same neck of the woods that Jalen Brunson is from. I mentioned him already. Okay. The, the, yeah. the Knicks. I don't think they went to the same high school. I want to say uh, Marilla went to Libertyville High School. Uh, and okay. Stevenson, but the point is in my mind, which the only the world I know, and I admit this, I'm a little embarrassed about this. I know Chicago, Skokie, Evanston. Those are like my, that's my triangle. That's right. my world. Okay. Right. Uh, and so I don't really know beyond outside that. Um, and that's more a statement about me. I can't stand driving these days on the highway. Anyway, neither here nor there. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, so I, I apologize to every year from Libertyville, uh, and Stevenson and high school, if I just assume they're from the same place. Um, yeah, I um, I think there's another uh, aspect to this that I'll be exploring later. Uh, and this was uh, suggested uh, another guest, uh, da uh, Denali Dasgupta, who was on the show on Tuesday, and somehow on this subject came up. Uh, and she said there's a guilt that uh, Chicagoans and people who have left Chicago have that as though they have deserted Chicago mm -hmm. and they have run away from Chicago. And by runaway from Chicago, they have contributed uh, to the problems that Chicago faces. And so the people who still live in Chicago want to assert, I didn't run away. I stayed. All right. And people who left Chicago want to distance themselves from responsibility for it went, went down in Chicago. I had never thought about it <laughs> to deny right. it. I was like, my yeah. mind blown. Your thoughts on that theory? Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting theory. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so tough to leave the city, man. And and a lot, a lot of it is because of uh, that mentality, the not running away, you know, uh, sticking it out and, and, you know, but I think I think that holds you back a little bit. You know, I, I, I think as honorable it is as it is to to stay, you know, in your hometown. I mean, 
and, and and doing good things within it. I, you know, it's not necessarily uh, a sports franchise, man. You don't need to stay loyal to you know a team, a, a city like that. You know, you can you got to think of yourself. You know, if you want to be, you know, an actor or, or you know so, someone in, in movies like myself. I mean, people tell me, hey, are you looking at LA are you looking at New York are you looking at Atlanta and the truth is I am because I'm always looking for a better position for myself you know and I, I I don't ever want anybody to try and revoke my Chicago card because I decided it in my 30s to leave I mean that's just so ridiculous I've done you know a, a handful of things around Chicago that I'm very proud of and if anybody wants to take that away because I decided to look for a better opportunity for myself then <laughs> so be it I mean whatever I, like go go ahead and 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 write write your story of of whatever that may be but in my opinion um you know it's it it haunts it that mentality is haunting it haunts me it haunts my dad it haunts um, a lot of my friends. And it's all because of this idea that we belong to Chicago. Uh, no, we're from there and it's, it's, it's built us. And I'm very thankful for what it's done for me. But at the same time, you know, uh, no city owns me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think if you get stuck in this idea of, you know, oh, I'm I'm shy till I die, or you know, whatever. It's just such a. Again, it goes back to this facade that you know I talked about. It's 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 just nothing but that. It's it doesn't exist. If you want to leave Chicago, because you think there's a better thing out there for you, explore that. I I mean, Chicago's always going to be here. You could come back to Chicago. Don't let people forget about you and then you know it, it, things are going to change obviously as soon as you turn your back on a city block i mean there's a there's a new business up there's a new something so you know i i think yes I, that mentality for sure exists but it's very ridiculous that it that it does that's a great riff uh and by the way i know what you're saying about things change uh during covid uh I very oh, yeah. rarely left my house or the area around my house, and I've been exploring mm -hmm. more uh, lately uh, and uh, coming out of my cocoon. And, man, I like – I drove down – what street was it? I can't remember which it was, but it was like, whoa, this is <laughs> – this has changed. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I haven't been down the street in a while. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like – I think yeah. it was Lincoln Avenue. It was like, whoa. Yep. I, yep. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah all right uh fitz thank you so much it's been a blast oh, talking to you uh God, let's give a shout you. out to your girlfriend a little shout yeah. out and a plug yeah, for her uh, great movie my, in chicago go ahead yes yes we're staying in chicago baby we're not going anywhere uh no um uh, it, uh shout out to my lovely girlfriend zoe pike she's working on a short film called bunny hole and that is uh bunny and whole spelled H-O-L-E, not W-H-O-L-E, as we were uh, uh, debating there um, or just talking about. But uh, that's going to be out. She's working on that now. I think it should be ready by fall. Don't totally quote me on that. I'm sure 
if I say this and Zoe's listening to it, she's going to be like, why did you put this pressure on me? Uh, but, um, but you know, it, it'll be, it'll be out. She's working on it now. It's going to be great. Uh, me and my, my dad and I are back, uh, with a podcast, the, the Max and Tony show, we just released episode 99. We're gearing up for our hundredth episode next week. So we'll have a really good guest for that. He's a Chicago staple and, uh, he's very important for, the music seat in Chicago. So I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll keep it a surprise. And uh, I have a website. It's max-fitzpatrick.com, max-fitzpatrick.com. You can check that out. My my reels are up there. Uh, short film is up there. Um, you know, I Vimeo, IMDb, all that. So if you want to know more about me, you can just go to that website. Very good, Fitz. Thank you so much uh, for coming thank you, on a little podcast. Uh, it was a blast. Also, I want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job, as he always does. I think Fitz uh, will join with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.